Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count. With Carl Truman, Todd Pruitt, and Amy Bird. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation. Welcome to Mortification of Spin. I'm excited about our guest today. We have gone deep into the South, and I have a friend that I'm excited to interview about her new book. But before we get to that, I just, you know, before we reveal who our special guest is, I just wanted her to play along with our little game. I've been trying to get the guys to be cultured a little bit more in slang language. And I thought, why not ask about a Southern expression to see what their skills are with uh, relating to people in the South? So um, do you have something for us that we could throw out at the guys, our mystery guests here? Yes. Yeah, I was just thinking of my grandmother's saying, uh, what's on the rail for the lizard? (laughs) (laughs) All right, guys. Man, I love that. What's? On the rail for the lizard. I, I think she just made that up. I'm not convinced that's a real set. Honestly, I, I don't know what that means yet, but I'm going to work that into conversation. Come on, just that's take a stab at what's it. What's on the rail for the lizard? Okay, so how about what's what's on the rail for the lizard with this growth in my armpit? <laughs> or would that work? For a new favorite phrase, you're not using it well. <laughs> not using what's it on the rail? right. What's uh, what's Todd going to have for lunch? Perhaps yeah, yeah, that's is, a good guess. Yeah. Uh, um. You're getting closer. All right. So, what does it mean? It's uh like what's on the agenda for the day? What okay. are we going today? Great. Oh. We to use that one. Yeah, we're using that on. one. What's on the rail? That'll be good yeah. just to ask when we're you know figuring out what we're going to talk about. What's on the rail for the lizard? Well, yeah. folks, you heard it here first. Mm-hmm. That's exciting. I'm excited about that. Yeah. So, Amy, what is on the rail okay. for the list today? Well, today we have my friend Wendy Alsop that we're going to interview. She's got a new book coming out this March 2017, Is the Bible Good for Women? Seeking Clarity and Confidence Through a Jesus-Centered Understanding of Scripture. It's a Waterbrook and Multnomah book. She's also written a really well-known book, um, Practical Theology for Women, years ago that um, I've enjoyed. And so I'm looking forward to the release of this new book, and we're going to talk to Wendy about it today. Hey, Wendy, how are you doing? Good. How are you guys? Doing fabulous. Um, let's just start off with, you know, what led you to investigate such a bold question, is the Bible good for women? Well, I have been struggling with it for a while, and it really, the real catalyst for me was when Rachel Held Evans released A Year of Biblical Womanhood and Mark Driscoll released Real Marriage right within a few months of each other. And they both went to the New York Times bestseller list. And and the why of that is in question. But <laughs> what happened <laughs> yeah. but what happened in that is that you had very legitimate problems in the conservative reformed guys book. And then the more liberal woman's book was able to point out those clear inconsistencies Mm -hmm. and problems. Mm -hmm. And but then in her book, and I felt like Rachel Held Evans actually asked incredible questions, poignant questions that a lot of women asked. Mm 
But then she had no hermeneutic with which to answer them. And so then then the questions just became the opportunity to discount the authority of the word. And I really I longed for a third way. Mm-hmm. Can we take the authority of the word seriously? Can we believe it is good? that all of it is good, but look at it with a Jesus hermeneutic, a Jesus-centered understanding of the Bible, and address these real questions. And and for a long time, it felt like to me, people just dismiss the questions uh, as a feminist, you know, yeah. feminazi kind of response. But what if you accept that the questions are legitimate, but then seek to really work through them from Scripture? Yeah, because I mean, reading through your manuscript you ask a lot of questions and then aim to answer them. And the questions seem to be, I think, ones that are on the minds of many people, especially women, but are maybe afraid to ask or even afraid to investigate for themselves to find out the answers there. I think they're afraid to ask it in in our churches a lot of times. Yeah. And instead, our churches should be the places that are most equipped mm. to respect the question and answer it well. Right. So what do you mean by good? Because, I mean, it's a loaded question. Is the, is the Bible good for women? Um, yeah. You kind of address that in the book a little bit, too. Yeah, I spend a lot of time trying to, to diagnose what do we often mean as a secular culture by that question? Mm-hmm. And what does the Bible mean? Mm-hmm. You know, what is God's view of human flourishing? Mm-hmm. versus ours. And I try to set up how our view, a secular view of human flourishing really is very, very weak and temporal, mm-hmm. where God has a long-term view of human flourishing in the community of Christ as well, and on this earth, mm-hmm. but in the community of Christ as well as eternally. And um, one of the things that I really came away with is how our American individualism feeds what we think of as good, like good is ultimate autonomy over myself. Mm -hmm. But how often God's instructions for good are the communal good, that if the community flourishes, individuals within the community flourish as well. Mm -hmm. Which starts with his glory, really. Right. But then even all of the specific laws, I was really fascinated by this because I took a very serious look at Old Testament laws. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and try to take a serious look at them without, you know, if you really believe that Jesus has paid the penalty of these laws, then you can engage them without condemnation and really look at, well, what, how is this supposed to benefit the community of Christ and the right. individuals within it? Mm-hmm. And so often some of the really harsh laws are harsh sounding, I guess. When you remove the condemnation, you can see why they were meant to benefit the whole of the community. Yeah, that was helpful in your book. The children, the husbands, the wives, the families, the aunts and uncles, how the community as a whole would benefit if you followed these instructions. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. I wonder, Wendy, as you just started to hint at it in what you just said, but as you think through some of the, oh, objections that some women might raise resistance-wise to the Bible. You've mentioned Rachel Held Evans. What are some of the, the hard questions? And, and they might not be very well-informed questions, but they might be, but they're legitimate questions based upon the knowledge of, of some of the people asking them. What are, what are some of those that, that you tr- seek to address in the book? 
Well, you know, the quote that Rachel Held Evans had that really got me had to do with how we, we usually, when we try to talk about biblical womanhood, we like the good stories. Like we like Ruth yeah. a lot because her story really resolves well at the end. And yeah. so Ruth becomes this, you know, the essence of biblical womanhood. But you have a lot of other women in the Bible who had much harsher stories. Mm-hmm. And Tamar is one of the first. Hagar has a harsh story, mm-hmm. but in terms of patriarchy, hers is more, I think, tied to Sarah. But Dinah in particular, it's just the men around her who kind of control her story. And it just ends up being one, of course, we would gloss over. Most people gloss over. A pastor would gloss over because what what do you do with it? Mm -hmm. But for women who are struggling, and Rachel Held Evans pointed this out, you have uh, Tamar, David's daughter, Tamar, who was raped, and Dinah. And the Bible doesn't really resolve this in the moment of the stories. Right. And so her point was, you know, well, what do you do with these women? You can uplift the good women, but you're not addressing the stories of the women that have harsh stories and harsh endings. And that there's no attribution in the Bible to particular sin of these individual women. So you can't say, well, Dinah got it for, you know, doing this, that or the other, because the Bible doesn't give us that kind of detail. And so, you know, what she prompted me to do was take a look at the harsh stories and even recognizing, wow, there are actually more harsh stories than I realized mm. because my pastors don't pay attention right. to those mm. much. Mm. Wow. What about Judges 19, Wendy? What do, you, what do you do with Judges 19, which strikes me as one of the darkest passages in the whole of Scripture? What is happening there, Carl? Oh, it's the gang rape of the Levite's concubine. And just as a comment, he dismembers her at the end, sends, yeah. her through, sends parts of her body throughout Israel. But the text doesn't tell you when she dies. So the text leaves it ambiguous as to whether she was killed by the gang rape or whether she was actually murdered by her husband. Right. So that's a tough, it's a tough passage for a whole lot of reasons. I'm wondering, uh, Wendy, how do you approach something like that? Well, one of the things I spend a good bit of time doing in the book is distinguishing between descriptive passages and prescriptive Mm -hmm. passages. And Judges really is a good example of descriptions, and Judges sets us up for it. This is what mm-hmm. people do when there is no king, and mm-hmm. everyone does what is right in their own eyes. And these are the kind of results. And so the mistake can be approaching a story like that and saying, um, you know, is, is God somehow saying this is okay? No, not at all. This is the state of mankind apart from obedience to God. This is what happens in a society where um, everyone does what is right in their own eyes, and they're not protections for the weak and the vulnerable. And so then what we can do is lift it up as a lament of our sinfulness and our depravity. But we have to understand the very real difference in the passages in which God is describing what happened in the history of a people who did not obey his commands versus something he's affirming. And I I think that's a really necessary tool for women to discern. Mm. I think related to that, something that I found really helpful in your book is how you open up with this illustration of the scarlet thread. And to help us to read scripture, um, could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, it is one of my favorite chapters in the book on how Jesus approached the scripture. So I start at the 
rode to Emmaus and mm-hmm. talk about how after he came back and he pointed out to his disciples how from the law and the prophets, it started telling them about these things about him and had pastors refer to the scarlet thread. In fact, a lot of what I've gotten in the book, I have to say, has come from good pastoral teaching mm, over great. the years of pastors who believe in a Jesus-centered understanding of Scripture. And I had some of these pastors use the phrase, which it comes from Rahab's scarlet thread that she puts out. But how did the color of the thread in that moment, was it important? Well, they draw attention to the fact that scarlet it and they actually say that that is why it is important. But it kind of points to this trickle of blood that starts after Adam and Eve leave the garden through Cain and Abel and, you know, and then then really flourishes um, under the Abrahamic covenant. But how this poetic trickle of blood starts in Genesis and threads through all of the Old Testament until when Jesus arrives in the new, they recognize him. And particularly, he's able to say after his own shedding of blood, this is what it was talking about. So I tried to, I don't know what Jesus said on the road to Emmaus, but I tried to imagine it Mm -hmm. and write out how I thought, tried to fill in the pieces of what I thought he might be communicating I thought that was helpful. That was a really helpful way to set up the book, too. As a pastor, Wendy, well, I'm renowned for being very much in touch with my feminine side. Mm-hmm. So probably you're not going to teach me anything here. But, um, let's just say hypothetically there's a pastor out there who isn't in touch with his feminine side. Uh, what can he learn from your book which would help him to preach the word of God better to the whole of his congregation? No Little Women, I thought was good and how it had a parallel, you know, pastors, uh, this is for you to consider. And, and then women reading this, this is for you to consider. I don't do it that way. I only really write to the women asking these questions. But I am hopeful that if a pastor can engage the book and kind of think through how a woman asking these questions would receive, if you could start, I mean, it's empathy. It's like basic empathy. Can you step into a woman who has perhaps been sexually abused or raped or um, had um, a particularly hard misogynist patriarchy forced on her? Can you step into her shoes and kind of hear how these passages affect her apart from accurate teaching from the word on them? And so I hope it'll just be a tool to build empathy and understanding in a pastor, as well as equipping him with some things that maybe, you know, don't get emphasized in seminary or theological books because that experience isn't emphasized in seminary or theological books. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think you really address a question that I'm sure pastors hear a lot or a comment, really, when people say, you know, I love Jesus, you know, I love the Christ, uh, not so much the Bible. Hmm. Well, that's why I started the road to Emmaus, mm-hmm. because this, right, we love Jesus. Mm-hmm. You know, it's very hard for even greatest critics of the Bible to fault someone laying their life down for another. But he loved the word. Mm-hmm. He loved the Old Testament. He didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Right. And that's such a powerful phrase. Grasp that praise, understanding that he paid the penalty, and then you can engage it again. 
That's why I really I feel so strongly about this. If you really get that there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus, you can engage the law and start to understand how it benefited. Because so much of our reactions negatively to the law are because we don't want to be condemned by it. Mm-hmm. And if you remove the condemnation of the law through Christ's sacrifice, then you can start to really see um, the blessings of it. That's great. Mm-hmm. So do we need to retranslate the Bible for it to be good for women? <laughs> I think that not necessarily the Bible, but sometimes, if and you guys are, are pretty theologically um, in depth, so no offense here, but sometimes we need to retranslate the theologians. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point. Yeah. A lot of jargon out there. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah, there's a lot of jargon. I mean, I... Even in um, the recent eternal subordination of the sun debate, I struggled. I had to look up a lot of words. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I had to to Google a lot of phrases. Uh, What does that mean? Same. Um, And and it's long been my burden is that sometimes the people with the really the best understanding of the whole of scripture are also least equipped to say it in a way that the rest of the world can understand. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's good. So, And I, I mean, I, I really think that's a good um, way to look at, you know, you and I both as, as lay people and, and authors, I mean, I think that you really aim to do that in your books. And there's almost yeah. another benefit for pastors and academics to read books like that than to build their communication skills with the regular lay person. Yeah. And I, and I think that's, that that's always a, an attractive pitfall for a lot of pastors is I can maybe establish some authority if I use more technical jargon mm-hmm. and it becomes more self-serving than it does. And some uh, of it's serve. important to use. I mean, like for when you we bet. were in the Trinity debate, it's, you, bet. you need some technical language yep. there. There are times when it's entirely appropriate and needful, but very often in the context of a sermon, mm-hmm. um, pastors are tempted to use technical jargon when when there's really not a need for it that's why i think it's good to pastors to start off by teaching little kids sunday school Mm. because it's hard to to, to teach little kids sunday school and it actually makes you much more aware of the audience than you might otherwise be i see this quite often in students i think when students preach they they want to prove to you that they've done the work. They want it's not a it's not a bad fault if I could put it that right. way. The motivation isn't bad. They want to prove they've done the work, but they forget the audience. And I think knowing your audience and being able to speak in a way that grabs your audience's attention and imagination is very very important. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why I think the title of Wendy of your of your book is helpful, and, and the idea behind your book is is helpful as well. Because oftentimes, I mean, I'm I would dare say most pastors aren't naturally thinking, hmm, you know what, this passage of Scripture, unless I explain it well, this might sound like bad news for my sisters in Christ, and it's not, so I I really need to explain this. I, I think very often probably we don't naturally, we meaning we pastors, don't naturally uh, consider that. And uh, just sitting here in this conversation, it's it's made me more aware of the necessity of that sort of engagement. Yeah, good. I was going to say the issue of application comes up there, and yeah. it's a fine balance to be struck between general applications and then applications that are so particular they don't touch many people. Though, right. you know, John in his letters writes to older, younger, little children, right. 
You know, yep. there's, there's definite precedent for seeing categories within the congregation right. when you make your applications. And when you think about women, if you go by national statistics on church attendance, more women attend church. So, so just statistically, most pastors are going to be preaching to a little, at least a little higher than 50% of their audience will be women mm-hmm. on a given Sunday. So that's no small niche group. Would you you say, I mean, in talking to pastors, I find that they're pretty pretty common say that the women in the church really are the ones who are aggressive and serving, too. I mean, Mm -hmm. like they're the ones stepping up more and seeing the needs in the church and people that they can count on. And I mean, they're active members in the church. Very much so. Well, back to the is the Bible good for women question. Um, I think a lot of the times we look at the Old Testament, we ask these questions that, that Wendy addresses so much in her book. You know, does God place less dignity on women in the Old Testament? But, you know, a lot of time has been spent on some of these more infamous New Testament verses as mm-hmm. well. Uh, you know, that a woman ought to be silent in the church or that um, she shouldn't have authority over a man. Um, how does your interpretive grid help with, with the New Testament questions as well, Wendy? One of the things I try really hard to do is use the Bible as the best commentary on itself. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, 1 Corinthians 11 on woman's head covering and headship, it really, really helped me to look at other places where Scripture taught about hair on women. And the, the other primary place was in Deuteronomy, I think it was 21, and it was a law on how to treat female captives. And it was it was a good law that you couldn't sexually assault them. You couldn't sexually use them. If you wanted them, you had to marry them. And then it was the process that they had to go through um, in order to marry them. But what a lot of people want to do with a hard passage, say, in the New Testament for women is to take outside commentary. Like, you know, okay, well, this was this was the goddess of the Ephesians, and Paul was probably addressing this, this, and this. And I'm not opposed to outside commentary at all. I think it, it projects onto Scripture and gives us some insight, but, but you can't use outside commentary to dismiss Scripture. You know, here's some, some nugget nobody else knows except some historians <laughs> over here. And that causes us to know we no longer have to obey this. Well, I really reject that kind of interpretation. But sometimes scripture itself gives commentary. Mm-hmm. So what does it mean for a woman to keep silent in the church? Well, you can use commentary from 1 Corinthians 11 because you have the same guy writing those words who also wrote in 1 Corinthians 11 and 14 of women speaking in the church well, there, and use these where the Bible is speaking on the same thing mm-hmm. and use them to project onto one another. I grew up in a more of a dispensationalist background that saw the Bible as all these separate mm-hmm. parts. And so when I became Reformed, it was really helpful to me to understand the Bible to where, where things from Genesis or things from Deuteronomy could project understanding on things in the New Testament. And I find that use of the Bible as the best commentary on, on itself really, really helpful to understanding what is and is not meant. I don't, I don't believe Paul is preaching things that would make Deborah an ungodly woman. Mm-hmm. I don't think he's preaching things 
you know, I think that scripture is a whole. And so we can use these other examples of women who were affirmed in scripture to know what he does and does not mean. Right. There's definitely things we can rule out and say, okay, he doesn't mean that once we walk through the church doors, I need to be quiet now. Can't say another word. Right. right. <laughs> as right. helpful as that right. might be. <laughs> <laughs> what is your next project, Wendy? I presume you're, you've already got something else in mind for, for the next book. Yeah, I do have um, a follow-up devotional that I'm interested in, in doing. I don't yet have it as a, I'm working on it informally, not yet formally. And uh, the working title is Jesus for Women. But my burden is, is to take some of these books that have really resonated. And I think of Jesus Calling, for instance, mm-hmm. where women really, really resonate with this familial conversation with Jesus, but it doesn't actually use scripture. But what if we sat in the actual scripture, and I saw it over and over again in the book of Luke, and so that's where I want to focus, like the actual scripture of Jesus and women in Luke, and we sat in the actual word, and we meditated on it, still in a relational, familial, devotional way, but it not being my version of the words, but the actual words themselves. So that's something I'm burdened for. And I think that's a real challenge is to meet um, this growing reading audience who are captivated by books like Jesus Calling and how to hopefully rescue some of the people out of that reading audience into reading better theology and um, God-honoring books. It's a real challenge. Yeah, I think the, the best way to get people not reading rubbish, is to provide them with something that meets the need, but it's actually good quality. Right. Right. So identifying that need is kind of what you're working on there. Yeah. You know, and sometimes you'll hear criticism of something like Jesus Calling, and it, it's so dismissive of what resonated with the woman that read it or mm-hmm. loved it. And it really offends them. Right. Right. But what if we really respect what it was within them that resonated with that and then offer a really a good theologically sound, biblically sound resource. I just, that's my burden. Yeah, Yeah. that's good. Yeah. Yeah. When a couple of ladies in my church told me they were reading Jesus Calling, I I didn't polemicize against it. What I did was I suggested they use Star Mead. Yeah. It's a Mm -hmm. little uh, devotional on the Heidelberg Catechism and uh, they both once they started on that, they didn't look back to Jesus yeah. calling. Yeah. Well, they yeah. got some solid stuff there. Giving them so, the, the better yeah. dish. Yeah. So, well, it's been a great pleasure having uh, our guest, Wendy Alsop, on today. And uh, I want to recommend her book, Is the Bible Good for Women? Seeking Clarity Through a Jesus-Centered Understanding of Scripture. We have uh, three to give away. If you go to our website, mortificationofspin.org, and sign up there, we don't yet have the T-shirts, the Adventure Park <laughs> tickets, the various other cover. spin-offs, which will come from this in, in sort of <laughs> Jesus Calling fashion, but I'm sure if you wait long <laughs> enough, they will Wind turn chimes. Yeah. No, seriously, it's been a real pleasure having you on the program, Wendy. Uh, it's been a real pleasure Thank having you. you all listen as well. Uh, please join us again next time. Uh, when we will have somebody on as a guest that I have no idea who they are at this particular point in time. <laughs> Thank you. I am woman, hear me roar In numbers too big to ignore And I know too much to go back and pretend Cause I've heard it all before And I've been down there on the floor 
Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Visit the podcast page and blog at mortificationofspin.org, where we'll have links and other articles from Amy, Carl, and Todd. And while you're there, please subscribe and consider making a donation. And be sure to listen next time when Carl, Todd, and Amy talk about... And yet what I liked in your book was you're clearly sensitive to the great benefits that modernity's brought, the great benefits that technology has brought. Yeah, I think it all ultimately is a result of the separation of appropriation from, from the sexual act. Young Christian men, young Christian women who aren't having sex, they're single, they're not having sex, the world makes them feel incomplete or inadequate. So I think we, I can learn a lot from you, and I hope you can learn a lot from me. We'll talk to you next time on Mortification of Spin. You know what? Wendy would be a great person to ask this. Wendy, is is it pecan or pecan? Well, here it's pecan. Oh, no. Yes. Oh, yes. no. Closer to the mother you. tongue. I live right in the middle of a grove of pecan trees. Oh, no. no Told you, you, Todd. No, you don't. Uh-huh. You live in the middle of a grove of pecan trees. But... <laughs> But I, I mean, they would send me away if I said that. <laughs> See, I, I told just, you it's a southern thing. Honestly, I don't know if I can go on at this point. Um, but, let's just say that Amy was right, and we can move on. Okay, uh, mm, come wow. on. Whew, that's going to be tough. I need to think about. <laughs>